Alright, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Trial Lawyer Podcast. My name is Gabriel White, and I'm joined here with a, by a group of fantastic lawyers, uh, larger than our normal group. I'll explain why in a second. Um, on my one side here is Scott Powers from Snow Christensen and Martineau. And my other side here is Patrick Burt, the law firm of Kip and Christian, and my partner Dan Garner. We're both here at the law firm of White and Garner. And um, why is today special? Well, we're going to be doing uh, periodically, uh, about once a month, um, a few months out of this year, uh, partnering up with the Litigation 101 series that Patrick and I typically do for the bar every year where we go over different topics of the litigation and trial process to teach um, younger lawyers uh, about you know, how to handle their first trial. Um, but we figured if we partnered up with the podcast, we could discuss some of these topics in a little more depth and maybe cover some more advanced material that we don't have time to cover in the CLE and uh, consequently make that available. So. Um, that's why we've gotten together here as a group, and we're going to be discussing today a little bit more advanced topics in depositions and discovery, um, which is a, a CLE that will take place at the Utah Law and Justice Center on, I believe, October 4th. Is that correct, Patrick? I think that's right. All right, at 4 o'clock, uh, 4 to 6, and uh, if not, I will correct it later in editing. Um that is correct. Yeah. Which, the, the, that's the right time or that I can correct it later in editing? <laughs> All of the above. All of the above. Yeah, October yeah, 4th things, at 4 right. o'clock. Objection So, um, let's talk about the Jumping depositions and discovery. <laughs> but before we get into that, just a brief word from our sponsors. Unfortunately, most lawyers are never available when you need them. Many of them don't put your interests first. The lawyers at White & Garner do things differently. We take each case very seriously. We will always put your interests first. We represent people who have been injured in accidents. We also handle commercial litigation cases. Other law firms assign your case to a paralegal or secretary and put that person in charge of managing your case. Getting your actual attorney on the phone can be a nightmare, no matter how important your case. At our firm, every case is important, and every client gets our full attention. We only take cases that we are comfortable taking all the way to a jury trial. Every move we make helps us better prepare your case for trial. To get the best results at trial, you need a lawyer that is paying attention and that is not afraid of a jury. You need the lawyers at White & Garner. Each client of White & Garner has access to their attorney at any time, any day of the week. You can talk directly to your attorney about your case at any time, day or night. If we do miss your call, we will get back to you within 24 hours. If you hire a lawyer from White & Garner, we will be there for you when you need us. That is our promise, and we keep our promises. I think probably one of the big mistakes that a lot of attorneys make um, because, you know, we're never really trained on how to do this in most law schools is just jumping kind of right into it and asking, you know, sitting down 
and maybe saying, well, you know, what are all the questions I might possibly ask in this deposition? Or what are, you know, what, what are all the things that I could ask this, these people in these interrogatories? And, you know, wind up with not a lot of useful information. I mean, we've all known in the state of Utah, depositions are typically limited to seven hours, and we've probably all been in depositions where somebody spent so much time talking about a witness's background and experience that by the time they got done with their education, um, you know, they had maybe an hour left to cover a huge amount of, of subject matter, and, and then they get cut off. So how do you typically, you know, prepare... When you've got a case and you're about ready to go into discovery, what is it that, you know, where should people start preparing? Well, for me, I think that you have to know your end game. I think too many people go into a deposition, as you said, Gabe, and don't know what they want to do with it. They think they just want to gather facts and then close out the deposition. But for me, I think that you need to know, you have to look at the litigation from start to finish and think, what's my strategy, what's my end game with this with this case and how does this particular deponent play into that? What kind of information can I get from this specific person that'll help me get to my ultimate end game in either prosecuting or defending this case? Well, well, have we talked about the need to determine your deponent? I mean, that, that, that goes into well, yeah, I, more, way before I decide what I'm going to ask the person and part of my what am I going to ask the person is formed when I make the determination of who I'm going to be talking to. Oh, of course. And I think, I think, the, I think the, prim the primary thing here is, is, is where, you, where it starts is determining you know, what your theme and what your theory of the case is. Yeah. Well, I think determining who and then in what order also. Because in some situations, you're not going to want to depose one person before you depose sure. another. Right? So, you know... I've seen a lot of hay made about deposition order and the like, but I don't feel like it's as critical as a lot of attorneys think it is. Well, maybe that's just and, my case. And I, I think it depends on, like I said, I think it all goes back to what is your theory of the case? What is your theme? How do you plan on convincing the jury, um, you know, to... I mean, we've, we've talked about before how trials are essentially um, competitive they're like competitive teaching contests where one person gets up and teaches one version of a narrative and then sits down and the other side gets to get up and teach their version of the narrative and the jury basically votes for which one they believe which one they like better and, and I th and I think you're right Gabe I think too many people think I'll use discovery to figure out what this case is about and develop my theme, and so by the time of trial, I have my theme in place. And that's, a, that's the exact wrong way to do it. You should have your theme, at least in general, at the very beginning of your case, and then you manipulate your discovery to match your theme. Now, as stuff comes up through discovery that may, you have to be a little bit fluid in your yeah. theme, you might have to change your theme around as you go through discovery, but you should go in from the very beginning of the case and think, okay, in general, this is how the theme of my case is going to be, and I'm going to use discovery to, to help put the pieces in place for that theme. Well, we've talked a lot, too, with our firm. You know, we want, on the plaintiff side, we want pressure, right? So if you develop the theme and what set of discovery you're going to 
issue at what time, then you you have to put that all together and you want to be more it's like chess. You gotta be thinking twenty moves ahead. Right. Without and, without sacrificing what that next move is. And I think in order to do that you need to know have a good picture of kind of where you're trying to go because especially as the plant from you know, from the plaintiff's perspective, you know, it's the plaintiff's case. And um you know, the defense might disagree with that, or my defense colleagues might disagree with that until we get into court. It's and we're a in front plaintiff's of, case, and we get in front of the, and if we get in front of the, the the court. So gay. And they're saying, "Well, he doesn't have an expert in it." And your honor, it's a plaintiff's case. They uh, they have to, uh, you know, decide what they want to what they want to try and prove, what they want to plead, what they have the evidence for. And really, you know, until you have a good idea of what your theory your theory of the case is. It's going to be very difficult to go about discovery in an efficient way where you're deposing witnesses. You know, and a lot of states like ours are moving towards, towards you know, l- more limits on discovery and depositions. And so, you know, especially in, Mul- in Utah... You have to be more efficient. Yeah, there, there's, a weird, there's some weird rules that come up where you have multi-party cases because... The rules say you get, you know, a certain number of depositions per side. And if that side has six parties on it, if you can't agree, then, you know, you either have to go, you you may wind up going to the court asking for more depositions, or you may wind up, you know, whoever gets their theory together and figures out what they really need and gets it proved first is the one that's going to be in control. So let me ask you this: What kind of theme? What kind of factors do you put into consideration when you're determining your theme? Like what, when you're at the very beginning of the case and you're thinking, okay, I got to lay out my theme before I even get into my depositions and my discovery. What do you use to determine what your theme is going to be? Well, well, that's why client interviews are so important, right? Yeah. Because you have to. Well, first and foremost, you have to make sure that the client know every case is going to have some warts, no matter what. Unless, you know, liability is just so clear that it's, you know, no one's going to argue that. Like all the cases we file. Yeah, exactly. Essentially, all the cases we file, we don't have to really worry about warts. But other other lawyers. Every lawyers have to. It's just the attorneys that mess up your cases. No, no, not so much. Not so much. (laughs) Patrick. Patrick, you can't can't stop yourself. And then Gabe steps in, and all of a sudden... Good. We're limiting it to Gabe, so at least we're improving. Oh, no, okay, Dan's, Dan's quality. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, Gabe, it's Gabe, that's that's, Gabe that's questionable. Okay, so <laughs> so client interviews are, are one Patrick component. Powers didn't even think that was funny. No. One, one, client interviews are one, one tool for helping you determine your theme. I think another, you know, I will typically get, you know, when a client calls you for the first time, you obviously have an idea of at least most of the primary causes of action that you're going to be bringing. I mean, in some of the more complex commercial cases that we have, you know, we sometimes have to sit down and think about it and be like, well, does this fit, you know, this particular, you know, business tort that you don't see very often and, you know, go through the recent case law on it. But for the most part, you know, we're looking at negligence. And so we think, all right, you know, Getting out 
the you know some of the jury instructions that have to do with your particular area, especially if you're in an area with a lot of rules that are going to come up in jury instructions, like construction, like um, like medical malpractice. Um, I mean, you're you're killing yourself if you're not looking at those jury instructions. And then, you know, one of the things I like to do is kind of develop a couple of lists of you know what are my best facts. And what are my worst facts in the case? And, you know, and look those over and think about, all right. And oftentimes in the process of doing that, a theme will kind of suggest itself that is, you know, a, a kind of common sense way of describing what happened with your client that emphasizes your good facts and downplays your bad facts or makes them irrelevant. Um, Another way that I think wise attorneys do this is by involving um, by involving non-lawyers in the process. Um, that's, that's what I was going to say, Gabe. For me, I always think that one of the best ways to come up with your theme is at the end of the day, if you go up in front of a jury, you have to make you have to present the case to them in a way that they're going to feel good about making a decision for you. Inherently, everybody wants to do what's right and what's fair. They want to feel good about the decision they've made. So you have to come up with a theme that the jury will think, I can go along with that, I'll sleep good tonight if I make that decision. And one of the best ways to get a sense of what is fair and what resonates as fair or justice to somebody is to talk to non-lawyers. Get outside of the logic of the case, get outside of the legal facts of the case, and that's just lay people here's the f kind of facts of this case i think that this is how it should play out and see how they respond to it yeah and you know i, I mean I, I think that oftentimes you also have um, well and that's harder to do yeah than, right because especially i mean if i approach someone that you know are paralegal or someone in the office especially they're going to know, well, we're on the plaintiff side, right? Same for you. They're going to know, well, 90, you guys do some plaintiff work, but not a lot. Right. So 98% of the time it's going to be defense. So by the facts, they may know, well, what does Patrick or what does Dan want me to say? Right. So I've used that just on my, use my in-laws and parents a lot of times because they're kind of, it's kind of interesting because they're on different political spectrums too. So <laughs> yeah. you get a little cross, cross, but it, you know, it's nothing scientific about no, that, and, but it, it can give you insights and, and or you cracks can, in the door where you can start to move in and expound. And we can, you know, and, and, you know, we could get into, we won't, but we could get into, you know, detailed descriptions. There are books out there tell you how to run informal focus groups that will help you to, to you know, figure those things out early in the case for you know fifteen hundred bucks or whatever, and there if you know there are cases out there that that uh, justify that. I've been told there are some that justify the professional focus groups that are thirty forty thousand um, dollars, but I have yet to encounter that. I have not yet litigated one of those cases, or at least not been the head attorney in one of those cases yet. So. I, I haven't done one like that, but... Well, and in the focus groups, I've Patrick usually in. is screwed, so usually... I usually have to have a focus group yeah. to see how screwed I am. Yeah. Um, but in, what I've noticed, though, from focus groups is that people are people, 
and you go to a focus group and they say to you basically the same stuff that your in-laws will tell you, that your spouse will tell you, that friends at cocktail parties will tell you. And so it's not so much a it's not so much a use these people to develop to to come up with a theme it's use these people to eliminate themes that might really hurt you like for example we had a we had we had a case where we had this idea for our defense and i did exactly like you mentioned dan i mentioned it to family members of hey i got this case and i think this is going to be our defense and it was surprising to me that people were not in, not not outraged, but put off by what my planned defense was, and so I had to change. I had to change directions because if it was offending people, you know that that I just talked to on a day to day, it's going to offend. It's going to offend eight people in a jury box. Right, and what we have to realize is we don't. You know, law school has trained us to think differently. Right. I mean, I think we'd all admit that, that we are not the same people, good or bad, as we were going into Most, law school. Mostly bad. Right? No, yeah. <laughs> so we, we just think differently than a juror. No, I remember, I remember reading, somebody encouraged me to read that book by Scott, uh, it's like Turturro, I think his name is, 1L. Before, yeah. yeah, before I went to law school, and he talks about after his contracts class, going to McDonald's and ordering a Big Mac and being like, okay, when is the contract created, and what would the damages be if I backed out at a certain point? You know, would I have to pay for the ingredients? Would I be bound by it? Had they, been, you know, was there this a contract of adhesion? What if there's pickles on my Big Mac and, and I did not want pickles? And yeah. there's no amount of therapy that can undo what no. law school does to you. No, it's 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 a cruel cruel and unusual process. Well, I think the biggest process is that it makes you think about both sides, and this plays into what you guys have been discussing and what I've been thinking about as I hear you talk about talking with families and friends and things like that. Part of developing your theme is, at the same time, developing the opposing party's theme so that you know how to combat it. Uh, I, I see all too many attorneys come up with a great theme and try it out in a deposition, cue me in on what they're doing, and allow me to then develop a counter theme that's all the more persuasive as a result. And so when I go into a case and I start thinking about a theme, I do two things. Obviously, I think as hard as I can about what the other side's going to say relative to their theme. And then when I get into the deposition, I present my theme. A lot of people like to hide bits and pieces of their theme, thinking, you know what, hey, I, I want to see, you know, I think it's good, I think it's persuasive, I'm going to wait and see what a jury says, and I'm not going to let the other side know what it is until I drop it on them at the last minute. I'll get my facts, but that's all I'll do. I try my theme in the depositions for two reasons. One, if I want any chance of a, a you know, an arm's length settlement, I need the other side to know that I'm coming for them and how I'm coming for them. But two... When I do that, I hear what the opposing party has to say, and then in later depositions, how they combat my theme, and I verify whether or not my best theory of the case that I've prepared in my mind for the opposing side is indeed what they're preparing. Or if I've done a better job than then, I'm stoked. If I haven't, then I readjust accordingly. But I think that when you're preparing for a deposition, you have to have the other side's theme in mind, or at least what you think their theme is, and do everything you can uh, to, to nerf that, to, to, to fight against it, and then you try it out, and if they have new things to add, well, then you adjust. But the themes, both sides have to be part of the depositions and when you're it, taking them. Yeah, and the only thing I would differ with that is, you know, I think it's important to anticipate what defenses there would be, you know, and oftentimes in the case it's fairly obvious what some of them will be, but I also think that 
you know, typically once I have a good theory of the case worked out and I've thought about the case from a lot of angles and things, you know, I don't usually mess with it unless a fact comes out that's just inconsistent with the theme, no matter what the other side does, because I, my feeling is, is that truth is truth and what resonates with the jury will resonate with the jury regardless of what the other side says and you know again unless there is some crucial fact that comes out that you know we didn't know about you know the clients say oh I didn't tell you about that oh I didn't think that was important and it's like oh that that actually was really important that you you know were super drunk that day well and one of the things one of the things that I'm advocating is I don't think that there's need to be secretive about your theme because if you're doing it right you should have your theme in mind and then be kind of orchestrating the discovery so that it all supports your theme and so it should be no surprise to the opposing counsel when all of a sudden they get they see your theme and they should see that how all discovery is leading them to that to that conclusion and themes are you know they're supposed to be persuasive right so i think exactly what Powers says is hey, this is what we're going with, and at the very least, maybe scare the other side, or be like, oh, man, how are we going to defeat that? I mean, if our theme is, hey, your uh, your client was out the night before partying, they're, you know, drunk, got blood tests, got this, we got, they were, you know, convicted criminally for a DUI, you know, that's going to be our theme, and that's going to, that should scare anybody. Right? That's going to drive the yeah. I mean, that's going to drive the whole case. And, and and sometimes you have themes that are like that that are just so persuasive that they just can't be overcome. I think a lot of times there are more than one way of looking at you know a given set of facts and one way of looking at a, a situation. But developing your theme early on and anticipating what the other side may be trying to prove or what at least legal defenses they may have, legal or factual defenses they have that arise, you know, what would you do if you were the defense attorney on that case, Um, you know, gives you a way to say, okay, well, you know, is this persuasive in light of the fact that they're going to try and allocate fault to my client? Is that going to be persuasive? Is is it going to be persuasive in light of the fact that you know, they're going to try and claim that my client's injuries actually arose from a, you know, a stumble they had five years before the, the massive car accident. Well, and the thing to keep in mind, too, is the harder to get a theme, the harder to come up with a theme, is the more likely that case is going to go to trial, right? I mean, it, when we talk about the drunk driver theme, more than likely that case isn't going because the other side's going to realize the situation they're right. in. So themes are more important the more difficult the case is well i'm building off of something both you dan and gabe you said of that um if you're developing effective themes within discovery at least from a defense perspective i note that and then it probably increases the value of your case that i'll report to the to the company or the to, to the insurance company or to the client to say it's very obvious plaintiff intends to do this. This is what this is the case they're trying to build. They're trying to really focus on these two avenues of liability. And to be honest with you, this this one avenue is worrisome for us. And and you know the second one maybe is a throwaway one, but this first one is worrisome to us, and we have to 
you know, I put it on your radar. And by doing that, by making me do that, put it on my company's radar, you just increase the value of your case. Okay. And so once, once we have the theory of the case laid out, the next step oftentimes is to identify, all right, you know, with that theme, what, what are the, and I, you know, I've, I've, in thinking about this, I noted them down as rules, principles, and standards, you know, um, standards of care, uh, legal rules that might come into play, uh, safety laws, you know, do you have a negligence per se sort of issue and looking at, all right, are there specific facts that I need to prove in order to hit, um, you know, in order to, 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 to prove my, my theory and, you know, that I need the other side to agree with. I mean, are there, are there rules that are so universal that support my theme, you know, that, you know, I had a case, uh, hotly, surprisingly hotly contested case involving a bike accident. My client had been in a bike lane and somebody pulled out in front of her. Um, you know, one of the things we were able to get pretty much everybody to agree with is that, you know, as the drivers who are pulling out into traffic should look very carefully to make sure no one's coming when before they pull out. Um, and, you know, no one was really willing, even the defendants weren't willing really to disagree with that. Um, and, you know, that's kind of a general standard. Um, you know, you shouldn't drive when you're intoxicated. Well, everyone's going to agree with that. Um, that, you know, if somebody's, it's going to be hard to allocate fault to somebody who's stopped at a stoplight when they're rear-ended, um, you know, on the free, on, on the highway. And, you know, you're going to, you're going to have an easy time getting most witnesses, including the defense, defendant and defense witnesses to say, okay, you know, is there anything my client could have done to avoid this accident? Why is there a stoplight on the highway? That seems... Dangerous. You ever been on Bangor Highway? Okay. I was thinking I-15. No. We were thinking the interstate. Oh, interstate. You spoke very carefully. Yeah, that's, and that's, he that would make, say that would interstate. Make, that would, that would, would you know. Great comparative fault argument. You know, two-edged sword. Two-edged sword. I stopped for the light. It would greatly improve my... about to get added to that. It would greatly improve my business model, but on the other hand, it would make driving on the freeway quite a bit more All right, so after 15 minutes, I think the theme is establish the theme. Well, well, and, and now, now we're going a little bit more into how to execute your theme within the deposition, and I right. think this goes back to, Gabe, something you mentioned at the beginning that I don't think we can emphasize enough is, is Muji. I think, I think too few of us as attorneys know the elements of our causes of action or of our defenses before going into a deposition. Again, it's one of those things where we do it backwards, and then we wait until the time of trial to actually start looking at Muji and looking at jury instructions and looking at what the elements of our of, of our affirmative defenses or what the elements of our causes of action are. And you need to know those before you go into the deposition because you need to know, okay, this particular deponent can give me these yeah. pieces I need to meet these elements. So you, you can set down, once you have your theme and once you have an idea of what laws and standards apply to it, you can sit down and say, all right, what, what facts 
would really help me, whether they're, you know, where, from where, no matter whether they come from any one of the sources that we've talked about, whether they come from the proposed rule. Muji is, for those of you not in Utah, is a modern Utah, or, or model Utah jury instructions. Uh, most states have, uh, or judges have their, you know, their own sets of jury instructions they like to use that you can usually get your hands on. Um, but, you know, looking at that, also there are non-legal facts that you may want to establish. Um, you know, I, I handle a lot of cases involving brain injuries or involving serious chronic pain cases. And in a lot of those cases, the injuries, um, the long-term injuries are, you know, there's almost always a fight about damages. And the reality is, is you think, okay, well, what do I need to prove you know how can I, how can I, prove that this person, their personality has changed? Okay. Well, you know, um, usually what we'll do is we'll set it up like saying, all right, well, this person is saying my client's going to say that you know her personality has changed a lot because of this, 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 and this, or their husband's going to say that. The other side's going to put up a neuropsych that's going to say that's not correct. I said, well, they just put her credibility at issue so I can call all of these witnesses and I'll line them up, you know, you know, religious leaders that have known them forever, friends that have known them forever, family members that have known them forever, and look for specific instances of conduct. So I'll make a list of, all right, you know, they showed increased fatigue, how? Okay, what, what ways, what what ways have they shown these different factors? And so you can make a list of facts that you need and then connect it up with, all right, where do, what witnesses do I get those from? Yeah. And sometimes it's going to be, all right, well, I'm going to get that from a document. Okay, so I'm going to, you know, request that document either by subpoena from a third party or through a discovery request. And that gives you... To the point where you're not just sending out. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, you know, a lot of the ways attorneys use written discovery, it becomes somewhat worthless because they'll send out basically the same set of written discovery on every case. And I, this is something I think is more of a problem for defense attorneys than it is for plaintiff's attorneys because oftentimes they have a much larger caseload than the plaintiff's attorneys they're up against. And so they'll have a you know, I, I have seen situations where they've had a paralegal send out basically on every case the same set of discovery you know, requests. Yeah, the first fifteen <laughs> of them, the first fifteen of them are identical on every case, and they go in and maybe add in two or three at the end, and it's just not really effective um, because you're not asking for things that you need in order to prove your case. You're not getting information that's going to be helpful and you're not you know and if you have to go up to the judge and and because they you know the other side doesn't answer the ones that you really wanted you're going to have a much harder time if you're trying to defend judge i asked them you know 35 interrogatories all at once and this these two right here were the ones i really wanted and look they they you know, they wouldn't answer them or they objected to them and I think their objection's wrong, then if you're going up there and said, well, I asked five things, Your Honor, and they couldn't even give me that. Well, and Gabe, you and I always talk about this in the CLE, is that at the 
a case is basically like putting together a brick wall. You have to do it brick by brick, and all the bricks don't come from the same same place. You might get a couple bricks from this witness. You might get a couple bricks from that witness. You might get a couple bricks from these documents. You might get a couple bricks from this contract. But you have to know where those bricks are going to come from and how you're going to get them. And so that kind of goes back to what you were saying about when you're going into a deposition, you need to know, okay, what bricks am I getting from this deponent? Make sure you don't yeah. walk away from the deposition without them. And I, I'll typically have a list of, and Patrick and I have called them different things, but I'll have like a wish list of things that I'm uh, uh, that I put in my outline. I love things that I don't necessarily, all of them, I expect the witness to say or admit but that I'd love it if they did. And I find that if I have them there, you know, the five things that I, I wish I could get, I, w- I would love it if they, you know, if they said these, I would be super happy. But, you know, I, I know that they're, they're going to be like, resistant. I love Gabe. Gabe is awesome. If you can well, get beyond those, those kinds of things. you know, I get them to be like, you know, no, there's nothing the other side could have done to avoid this accident or... You know, yeah, I was driving too fast, or no, I shouldn't have looked down at the... Yes, I was texting. Yeah, or, you know, things like that where it's like, if I get it, I'm home free, but what are the odds that this witness is going to get it? And you'd be surprised when you have it on your mind, because it's in, in a section of your outline, how often you you work your way around there, and eventually you're much more likely to get some of those things from the witness if you have it there and if you've thought about it then if you're just like well you know there's no way he's ever going to admit he was texting at the time of the accident so you know why bother i'm just gonna i'm just gonna rely on the cell phone records well maybe 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 he or she will so send out positive vibes into the universe and they might come back to you no i think have have, right have we were have on your mind what you want and don't don't uh, don't don't make assumptions about what the witness won't tell you several years ago i went we were at a deposition we all went to lunch and uh it was a construction case so there was was like eight defense people and we were talking and and one of the attorneys like yeah i really need this i want to ask this i need you know this point and i don't want to get too specific because i don't want to blast this person but um, and then they just didn't ask, and, I, and we talked about it for like a half hour at lunch, and I was like, why didn't you ask about that? And she's like, oh, I just didn't, I didn't think I would get it. Because you have to remember, these are average, ordinary, everyday people that are coming in. The first thing that happens to them when they get into the deposition is they're sworn in under oath. And a lot of people that resonates with, and if you, if you ask the question in the right way, you'll get the truth a lot of the times. Well, and you know, if you've ever prepared a witness for deposition that advice all the advice that you give them goes in one ear not the other well i think they hang on to it for the first five to ten minutes of the deposition but you know with the exception of your professional witnesses who who really don't need any prepping you know cops um Experts. experts you know things like that they you know in in 20 minutes they're talking to you just like it's a conversation and a lot of times they're you know you're talking about what happened and it, and they want to just tell Some hey things, yeah. you know they think if they just say look you know yeah i i i made a mistake i was you know i got this and they think you know if they explain that it was a really important text message you know or if it was a really important call they were on or something 
that that everyone will understand. Let me ask you relatedly. Let me ask you this because I've been thinking about this a lot lately. A strategy question. Okay. Uh, you mentioned that most of the time the deponents have in their minds their attorney's instructions for about the first 10 or 15 minutes, but then it just becomes a conversation, and it's surprising how much you can get out of them. Depends on how you handle it, but yeah. yeah. And that's usually my tactic. My tactic is to warm them up, engage them in kind of small talk, get them, let them feel comfortable before you start diving into to intense stuff. Um, I've come across more and more attorneys that the first question they'll ask out of the gate is the million dollar question. Yeah, are they They'll younger attorneys my, though? No, my name is, I, my name I, is Scott Powers. You would agree that you did this wrong, hey, right? wouldn't you? I've been to I've been to seminars with uh, with I've been to a couple with where with Roger Dodd presenting and he's one of the you know premier guys on cross examining witnesses, which is essentially you know what we're, what we're doing in depositions and. He says a lot of times he'll send his, you know, an associate with a couple of questions to ask right first off at the beginning of the depot, you know, what, um, you know, these million dollars, because no one's expecting it. And, and that will, that can throw a witness off too. Now the normal thing that I would say, and I've heard him say, is they say you start out in in a state of sort of dumb as a post, where you're just like, you know, gosh, I help just, me out here. I don't. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't I don't understand what's you know. Teach me what. What? Tell me. Give me. You know. I want to understand how this happened. And yeah, you know what? Everyone's got their own theory, but I'm a big fan of the slow boil. I mean, I spent the entire day yesterday in a deposition, thirty b six deposition. We're in. I've never seen you slow boil. I've seen you. You don't even know what you're talking about, Jimmy. You've seen me in like two depositions. You are the fastest talker I've ever I've ever met. You're missing the point. Yes, I am a fast talker, but the, the what I'm referring to is doing exactly what Patrick said. Slow boil. Slow no, boil. is is getting in there, ingratiating yourself powers. with That's them, and establishing relationships of trust. That's what opposing counsel wants to do with them. Build relationships of trust. Slow boil. <laughs> uh, no, I, I spend a lot of time establishing rapport, establishing their foundation. Um, giving them a chance to talk about themselves. They got very comfortable yesterday. And little by little, it really wasn't until just before lunch, by the time I was hitting them with the hard questions, and it was a construction case, uh, over a construction contract and alleged breaches thereof, uh, not dealing with defects. Well, there were some defects. But in any event, by the time I had established that, we had a rapport, and they were almost apologizing as they gave me everything I wanted. Here's the other reason why I like the power slow boil approach. Is that that's what we're going to call it from now powers on. The power slow boy. The powers. I just imagine you surrounded in, in a village somewhere with a bunch of people marching around you in a pot. <laughs> you know, on a fire slow somewhere. Boiling. It's filing trademarks. And a one, guy saying, one guy is saying, you, must, you must slow boil him. To why, wait, why tender. am I in the pot? See, this because is you look at the one came up with it. I said slow boil. boil. I didn't That's say right. I, I'm slow boil. And you say I favor see, the slow see, boil. See, they're the, they're the frogs. I don't want them jumping out of the pot. Uh, so I'm I'm uh, the boiler. Okay. Oh, I'm not I, the boilee. The deposition. <laughs> so you're too. marching around. I'm boat. marching around the pot, oh, saying, "Hey, you know okay. what? Stick in the pot. It's not too hot. Stick not in the pot. Bad. It's not too hot. In fact, maybe that's the 
That's the phrase that we're chanting. Stick in the pot, it's not too hot. Stay in the pot, it's not too hot. And it kind of rhymes and it's catchy. I think you need and less, they, and they get into this is, this need less caffeine. Involved. Relatedly, this is how Scott less. landed his wife. Just stick in the pot. <laughs> just stick in the pot. Stay, stay with me. Stay with me. It's okay. Yeah, it got a little hotter, got a little more annoying. Stay with me, honey. He just never Little by little. Most people call it stockings. Scott calls it romance. Some people like... Some people like uh, cucumbers better pickled. Well, you have to understand, too. I mean, in the deposition, normally, I mean, it's like a test for seven hours, right? Right. This person is in here. Yeah, a lot of the questions are, what's your name? What did you do for school? That kind of stuff. But, I mean, seven hours, that's a long time. And there, you'll get worn down. Speaking of seven hours. But see, I don't don't ever let my witness get worn down. But while we're on this... They, I think there are, and maybe this is me conveying a little bit too much uh, strategy. Speaking of a deposition, if you're going to be in there, you're going to be in there a long time. I think there are few better strategies for intimidation of the other side than even if you feel worn down, you got to portray that after that seven hours, you're still on top of your game and you're feeling great and you could go forever. Here's the thing. I love it when here's, everyone's walking out of there feeling fried. Like, how is here's, that guy still? Here's the thing. Still, still on his still game. It's been a nine-hour death march today. So let me say a couple things about these, your about these appro- about these approaches. In my depositions, unless I'm dealing with an extremely complicated case with multiple parties, which and, are none of Gabe's cases, which so. are not my well, I don't do insurance work anymore. And hey, so, girl, it's not all insurance. And work. so, like, and so, how did the cat get up in the a tree lot of it? Lady? <laughs> a lot of it. There are you know two or three parties in my cases, and that's it. But if I'm going seven hours with a witness, something's gone wrong. The witness is yeah. you know is either being or super, super, super cagey and just yeah, see, that's ridiculous, or whatever, or type of case. And then on responding on to your idea of of like marching, death marching them through the seven hours. No, I'm not death marching it. It's, I will it's watch all my. Relevant. It's I, all I pay close attention when I'm defending the deposition. As soon as I see my clients start to get tired, and you can always tell they're starting to get worn out when they start to be like just. Just, uh-huh. to, just yeah. agreeing with everything. Yeah. Agreeing yeah. with everything. Oh, come on, yeah. Gabe. That's, the, that's what you have to that's do. That's when I, I mean, say, I say, well, they'll tell you. We'll I'm say, tired. We'll you say, know, like every we'll, hour. Yeah, we'll say, well, I'll say, okay, let's take a break, and I'll go out, and I'll talk to my client, and then I'll come in and say, you know what? My client is too tired to continue today, um, but we're going to, uh, we're super willing to come back and uh, finish the deposition on another day. Let's take no. a half-hour power nap. We'll come back. I, I, where is that supported under the rule? I'm entitled to not have to duplicate sign where up is a that, reporter. Where does that Where does, where that does that say, it say you can do what you just described? Well, it here's, here's, what, here's what happens. If, if I agree with here's, 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 here's what's going to happen. Okay, if you if you object and you call the judge, okay, I'm going to say, Your Honor, my client is too tired to continue answering questions. Because she has this condition, this condition, this oh, condition, this okay. condition, well, this condition, see, and, this and she needs to, she needs time to rest because this is giving her a migraine, and and it's I'm afraid it's going to affect her ability to give accurate responses to opposing counsel, and I put the I, I put that on the record. If the judge forces us to go forward, I have just made any good stuff you get subject to impeachment. Okay. Because I can say, yeah, well, that was get, after that so, was after they forced you to stay there. Gabe, you after you told them, hold on, a, after you told them 
that that okay. your your medical condition was forcing you was, was making it difficult the emotion. Hold on, right, well, your well, medical condition was made it difficult for you to continue to answer questions and to understand the questions you were being asked. Right? Yes. Okay. Well, okay. So that may be the case, Gabe. But what you've just described is and a, and, is and I've an never exception. had a judge okay, or opposing counsel. First of all, I've never had an opposing counsel try and stop me, and second of all. Because because they know they're going to lose on okay, it. Okay. So so. And second of all, I can't imagine a judge saying no. The witness has to continue. Right. I don't we're, care how we're, tired or in pain she is. So two things. A, we're talking about deposition strategies and what to do and how to prepare and, and things to employ, and so that's what I've just just provided. Now, oh, sure. what you've explained is a narrow exception to that, and. You know what? In a scenario where someone has a legitimate medical condition and they need to take a break for a legitimate reason, it's not like I'm going to stop that. But in most of my cases, particularly construction and surety cases, I'm not running into a, a deponent who has a legitimate excuse to, hey, you know what? I want to take a break. I want the ability to go back, review all you know, what I've said all day long, talk with my attorney, change things up, and come back and, quote, continue my deposition, but at the same time providing now a new and... and uh, special version of the same testimony Shame. that I would otherwise provide if, if, if I would have had to sit in that room for seven hours like I think the rule requires. So, bottom line, there are exceptions to that. You've laid out a pretty good one. I'm going to cede it to you because I think that if you said my client has X, I Y, do and Z, do, I do do I'd have to give it to you. Injury cases. Now, I can see... In I don't a, think the rule requires it to be done at the same time. No, the rule... There's no There's no rule right. that, that says... No, it doesn't say one way or the other. Yeah, and, and so it's going to be up to the discretion of the judge and I think even in... Now, now I, I agree with you. I think it's 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 more of an edge case, but I think even in a even in a construction case where the witness, we get on the phone with the judge. And I said, Your Honor, I've talked to my client. I've observed observed my client. My client is simply too fatigued to continue today. The answers They're are no longer helpful exact, exact, to my case. Your no, Honor. I'd say, and and you know what, <laughs> and and you and you and if you say he just wants a chance to review his testimony. I'm going to say, Your Honor, we're not going to have a transcript until the deposition is finished. So he's not going to be able to review his testimony. You he's got, going to have a chance to talk to his I mean, at the end of the day, we're, we're just litigating this this pseudo motion. I mean, it, right. it, it's, everything is considered on Point a case-by-case is, case basis. I wouldn't, I'm not going to let my client lose the case just because they got tired. Let me, let me, let me sidestep. Like every human Well, being I mean, right. and if you're defending a deposition, what Gabe says is absolutely right. You know, right. Be, on, be on the lookout for that. If, even if your client hasn't told you they're tired and they're flagging, and maybe, they're, that's, a and tactic to, maybe right. that's a tactic to employ sure. so that they don't just give stuff away as you're seeing it come in that is wrong. Yeah. Let me, let me sidestep away from Gabe's... Um, are you asking uh, to sidestep? Or are you telling si- us that's what's going to si- happen? Are you sidling? Request denied, Patrick. I want to sidestep away from Gabe's stamina issue back to <laughs> Scott's, Scott's uh, slow boil approach, which ironically, Scott won his wife over with a slow boil. Gabe won his wife despite the stamina issue. <laughs> <laughs> so, going back to the slow boil. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason Patrick Burt will never, ever be on the United States Supreme Court. I disagree. I, I would vote for him. So would I, but I'm just saying. Nah, you wouldn't have the stamina to vote for it. <laughs> I'd be too tired. <laughs> oh. I get halfway to the ballot now. Yeah, yeah, I can't, I make, need the, a break one of the, can't make it the last. One of the other reasons why I like the slow boil approach rather than the right out of the gate is that uh, there's not just fatigue on the, and, and we'll even tie in Gabe's lack of stamina. 
is there's not just fatigue on the witnesses part there's fatigue on the defending attorneys part um, if you come right out of the gate with the million dollar question the hackles still, go up they're um, ready for you the attorneys still paying attention yeah. they give five speaking yep. objections and the question is lost you wait till the middle of the deposition you wait till you see the the defending attorney pick up their phone and start looking at a text message or or an email, and then you hurry and sneak in that that sneaky question. You know the the million dollar question. Nine times out of ten, the attorney won't realize that you just got a great answer. Or if they do, it's too late and it's already on the record. See, and most of the attorneys that I deal with are not are are are, are not, not quite powers caliber. Are not are not inexperienced enough to fall for sneaking the sneaking the big question you in know the you minute. say that it? but i i no no i i see it happen I, in probably okay it, it maybe it happens percent of my deposition however i will say sneaks in i have seen very very competent attorneys right at the beginning of the deposition because their brain your brain tends to shut off because you're used to hearing the depositions start with them with 20 different instructions tell me every and job all this, you've had since other job you're having and, and when you say that night you were that night you were going faster than the speed limit, weren't you? Right out of the gate, a lot of times the attorney's going to be like, ah. And the reality is, Jeez. is that most of the objections to the question are pointless. And I can say that's my favorite thing to do. Uh, one of my favorite things to do in the in the deposition when you know I get that litany of objections that are completely pointless and not proper deposition objections, I'd say, okay, well, you still answer the question. Ignore him. You tell me. I want to hear from you. What uh, You, the witness, What uh, just ignore, and I wave off the attorney a little bit, like, nah, I'm not interested in your objections, because I don't have to, because, like the rule says, and the, in the federal rule, it says, you know, objections will be made and the deposition will continue. Right. Can we use the power of this podcast right now to advertise to the world to stop making objections in depositions. I, I think it's I there think it's an appropriate, appropriate times to object. I think it's an appropriate let me, let me ever, ask and the, it's let appropriate me, topic to, to let address. Me, let, me, let me let me ask this room. How many of you guys have ever been burned by not having made an objection in a deposition? Now are we uh, I've uh, seen one case. Okay. There's there was one case, two or three where where it turned on whether or not and I I want to say it was a preservation issue, and whether or not they had made an objection during the deposition or or, or a summary judgment issue, that was reviewed by the Supreme Court and they said well it wasn't objected to but the the reality is is the vast majority of objections that are made in depositions are objections that don't need to be made in the deposition because well they're in and they're because they're pre- they're preserved. Right. So, so to for the clarifying of the the record, the only re, the only objections you have to make in a deposition are depositions will uh, objections will be waived if it's an objection that the questioner can fix at the time of the deposition. So if it's a exactly. compound question, a vague question, something of that nature, if you don't make the objection at the time of the deposition, it is waived if you try to bring that objection back up at the time of trial. And most of the time there are objections that are not, I mean, you know, if the question's vague, the witness is, is either going to say, no, wait a minute, I don't understand that question. Right. Or, right. you know, they're, they're fairly minor objections. So the, the, the objections really shouldn't be a major part of depositions. Com- it's compound, right? Well, I mean, we all, 
Some, it, it I, happens on the I, I mean, there, Someone there, will ask use, a compound, and here's, so here's the context that I use. I mean, I, I object with some frequency, at least in my construction cases, because oftentimes they will. It's very fact intensive. Because if you don't, then you'll never get the other side. Off well, okay, them. Gabe, smart guy. He's the smartest. No one, no one can dispute Gabe. <laughs> Um, but messing with you, but, it, but if, if someone were litigating a complex case, this is where Gabe's stamina is outlasting he's, Scott's. He's, 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 <laughs> yeah, outlasting Scott's stamina. There is no outlasting Scott's stamina. Slow boil is. We're seeing the slow boil here. It's boiling over. No, no, we're not even an hour into this. But but by being aggressive, he's set me off. So now I'm on top of things, whereas I would have been falling asleep. No, um, well, that's where I like to what, keep I'm re- what I'm referring to. On your toes. That's what I'm here oh, for. Oh, I thought you meant well, sleep. I'm, I'm not a tall like, guy, so oh, I've got to be like, on my toes. Someone else has not become a Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> what? I don't know what you just made a reference to, but it sounds creepy. I'm not even going to um, guess at that. I, I, God, I totally lost what I was going to say. Uh, and that's how you make an objection. And that's really how you make an objection. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the purpose for Patrick and Bert. No, no, no. Go on. So I was talking about the objections. <laughs> it's so the, track. Yeah. But if you're asking, in a complex case, oftentimes you have to put on the record, for example, uh, that, that it's lacking in foundation and that it's vague because if your guy just says yes to this, you know, okay, and, and you weren't even there that day, right? Yes. If, if there's a lack of context, I mean, you could be dealing with a multi-million dollar issue relative to a construction delay, and if they're thinking, oh, I wasn't there on, you know, 2017, whereas they were talking about 2016, that could be a huge issue in your case. So I oftentimes have to object and say, look, you haven't laid a foundation as to your vague question. Do it, and, and we'll move forward. Well, and I, I, and I and because of the one, sloppiness of the lawyering that's happening, I oftentimes have to do foundation's it. Foundation's a proper one, but too often. Well, I, would I understand say, it. That's my point, though. I, I mean, say it has to be proper, but when it's proper, you got to use it sometimes. But I would say that 95% of the foundation objections I hear are made to the question that I'm asking trying to lay foundation. Were you there that day to see this inspection? Objection, foundation. That's a foundational well, that's what I'm trying to that's a foundational Yeah, no, no, question. I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. If it's used improperly, yeah. well, then no, I'm not arguing for that. No, I think I mean, I know a, crap objection a, a very, is a good idea. I know a very prominent, well-experienced construction attorney that I used to see all the time on, on cases that would sit there silently all day until the particular part of the building that his client worked on was discussed and then and he's not in this he's not in this room his oh, name's not older 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 pot scours no <laughs> his name's not pot scours pot scours there you know um his his he may have the same initials as jackson brown um the musician but um hmm. uh now who the rest would, of the, suddenly, the whole room just looked well, up then at the that's ceiling. as far as we're going to go. That? <laughs> that's as far as we're going to go. But this guy will, oh. as soon as his client is mentioned, there are objections to every single question, and there'll be five of them. Five or six objections to, almost, to nearly every question that is asked until you move on to another part of the... We'll ask better questions, Gabe. Of the... Of the of the uh, construction of the, process, of the, yeah. Until you move on to something that doesn't deal with this client, and those are no longer being discussed. Yeah, and um, he, um, you know, and and it's just it's improper, improper, because the only reason for doing that is to, like the rule says, is to try and disrupt the questioning. To try and so what did you do, Gabe? What have you done? 
Um, oh, you I've say, experienced hey, JB, enough, sit down. I've experienced it enough times that I've that I've learned with 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 attorneys that have that as part of their repertoire. It's not worth engaging with them and just. You know, I'll just say, I'll just roll on. And sometimes I'll do that. I'll be like, oh, you can still answer the question. Pay no attention to him. And when I, when I, say, when I say pay no attention pay to no him, attention. they get really, the attorneys really get really upset. But then I turn to them and I say, I'm sorry, were you intending to suggest an answer to your client with your objection? Were you intending to change your client's answer by him paying attention to your objection? And what are they supposed to say to that? I mean, the reality is a witness isn't supposed to be getting direction from their from their attorney from the objections, and so usually I get some huffy response. Ah, oh, you know that's not what I was supposed to do. But I when I know you know when I've dealt with this attorney or a few others that have this as part of their repertoire, I just motor through it because I know it's pointless. I may say, you know, oh, you can answer anyways. Don't pay attention to the objections. They're just for the record. You, you mean you don't want to have a death match over a useless objection? Now, when I'm, when I'm dealing with a younger attorney or when I'm dealing with somebody that I haven't dealt with before, sometimes I will say, okay, here are the, here are the objections, you know, that are proper. Here are the objections that are not. Your objections are not proper. And if it keeps up, we're going to call the judge. How many times have you called the judge, Gabe? Um, I have I've called the judge two or three times. I've had to call the judge two or three times. In, in your entire career? Yeah, because generally they either back like down. I feel today's discussion or, has involved a lot of... See, and I prefer a The discussion way. is threatening to call the judge. I right prefer now. a simpler way. No, I usually have the, the judge. judge's phone, num phone number in my, I put it in my outline in case we need it. I mean, yeah. I've only... like I said, Do you really do that? Yeah, and, I, and like I said, I've only really needed it to actually do it uh, three or four times because usually, you know, I when I I'll I'll I have a pretty good sense, partially because we've been teaching these CLEs for so long, I have a pretty good sense for exactly what the rules are on, you know, certain objections are and, and on there, and I can cite, all right, here is this case which says, you know, here is this case which says here is this, you know, rule that says this, and usually they'll back down. Yeah. And I know where to make my stand and where not to. One of my favorite ones is when they, when, when an attorney orders his, his client not to answer. And there's only four bases for doing that. And yet you see it all over the place. And the rule spells it out really well. And so I can just, I just tell the, all right, you're directing your client not to answer. Okay, here are the four reasons you can do that from rule such and such. And uh, which, which of those reasons is it? Well, I, I don't have to give you a reason. I'm All right, reasons not to answer. I got a question for you. And then, and then I've got it set up for my motion, my my statement of discovery issues to come back and have them pay to do the deposition again. And I've had that happen uh, multiple times. I've work. had one attorney where we've called the judge every single time I had a case. Really? Well, there are some people that are just that Is difficult. His name Potscowers. No. <laughs> Did he have a slow boil? His his name, was his name Wabe Geit? <laughs> who did you say? Who said they had a question? Did I have a question? Yeah, you had something you wanted to say. Oh, I don't know. I got I got lost in the wonder that was your your uh, eyes. soliloquy and your eyes. Well, I mean, they're, they're, we all know attorneys that are just that are just so difficult that you just have to take oh. measures all the time. But no, it did. You raised an issue. Um, 
with regard to instructing a client not to answer. Now, oh, typically, that's right. reserved for I issues involving privilege. There's four. But, but, okay. Well, go over the four. Okay, so the four the four issues are without a hypothetical for each, just the actual. Yeah, issue. no, just the straightforward to pres to to preserve a privilege, mm -hmm. to uh, enforce a protective order that is already in place by the court. Um, if the question is just to harass the witness, and there's harass or mm -hmm. embarrass, you know, Badger, such and yeah, such. Yeah. Or if um, you're if you're going to seek in order to, to seek, seek protect a order. protective precisely order. those so, are four yep because I had a situation um, golly, so I, I but I haven't even I haven't been in a situation like it, this if it involves something that you could get a protective order over yeah again. I mean I had a client who was asked it was a thirty b six witness deposition um, two two weeks ago. And I had an extraordinarily belligerent uh, opposing counsel asking the same question over and over again and getting the same question answered over and over again. And finally I said, no, you're done. Just because they're not giving you the answer that you want does not entitle you to ask the same question 16 times. And if you, I'm going to let you ask it one more time. You get your answer for the last time. And then if you ask the same question again, I'm going to instruct them not to answer. Are you, uh, are you instructing your client? No, I think I'm entitled to a protective well, which order. Which one on of those was, yeah, exactly. Which one of those? Yeah, well, it, I that, think it was twofold. Order. It was the, Two it was order. the harassment and it was the protective right, order. Exactly. So, okay. Yeah, I mean, there are situations, but for example, I will get all he, the Because he, he got all, he, there's no basis. I will, you can't I will instruct get, him not I will to get answer on that basis. I think I can. Well, people will try and execute the slow boil by doing that. I will, and it's. I will get just not all the time proper instructing their client not to answer, right. where it's a thirty b six witness, and um, I ask something that's outside the scope of the. That's not it. Deposition. I, I, I know, but I get people all the time who say don't answer. Don't answer because that's outside the scope, and I'll say, well, he can answer for himself if it's out, if it truly is outside. I don't think it's outside the scope, but if he has information on it, I can ask him about it, and the company's just not held to it. And, um, you know, and, uh, you know, that's, that is one of the issues that I've come, it's, I think it's Harris versus IES Industries or something like that. The Harris case goes over that in detail. Um, you know, so I'll, I'll cite that. And if they want to do it, I'll be like, okay, well, we'll file, I'll continue today, but we're going to file a motion and, and we're going to get attorney's fees and we're going to come back and finish it. And. Getting a, getting a couple times a sheepish call from opposing counsel about a week later after my motion's been filed saying, uh, we, you know, I read the rule a little closer and I think I, you know, didn't really understand what you were getting at. So we'll, we'll, we'll agree to come back and I'll, you know, we'll pay for it and we'll let you ask your questions. And How many times has that happened, Gabe? Twice. I think that happens too much. I think people try to get tricky with the depositions and stuff just... I don't. I don't get it. It's all supposed to be part of fact it's discovery. Everybody you're, you're, it's not the big show. It's the, it's the show before the yeah. show. No, and I, I agree. think that's a result of too many attorneys that don't do trials now, and so discovery and depositions become their zealous advocate moment. Well, and also the uh, the fact that it's 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 odd, but I mean, how many depositions had you taken at your firm before you actually sat down and read? The rules governing depositions. Right. I mean, I'll leave, I'll admit. Oh yeah. I it'd been a couple of years Zero. of me taking me taking 
me taking, you know, I'd probably taken a hundred depositions before I'd actually did it. Why? Because I learned by watching other attorneys do it. Yeah, but you didn't. Then it just perpetuates things like my favorite one, the document speaks for itself. The objection, the document speaks <laughs> for itself. Document. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so ridiculous. Like, we've actually, for a CLE once, we created a video where we basically made a Muppet out of a document that would speak for itself to show how silly this was. But, you know, that's what you get. So many attorneys just don't read the rule. I had a, a mentor once who encouraged me, look, look, anytime you're going to do something in the rules, either you haven't done it in a long time or that you're doing for the first time, get sit down. Take a few minutes and read the rule of civil procedure. Even if you think you know how to do it, read the rule of civil procedure that that, that goes with it, some of the decisions, and you're going to be much better prepared to carry out what you need to do. Um, because, and at the odds are, the other guy won't. And that's, you know, that's made a big difference to me. I don't, I don't know me. that the odds are that. I, I think... But how many attorneys you know of, of, can say the last time they read Rule 30? Last time, Sid, last time gave See, I, I read them before. I was freaked out before my first deposition. I read, oh, I read the rule. So slow boils I, 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 I looked online for SB tips. Is the, uh, SB is the example. Slow boil here. Is well, the I went around. Is, is the, the exception that proves the rule, excuse me. So I was actually, before my first one, I was, I was like, powers, I was freaked out. So... Uh, See, we have, I we have only... two competent attorneys in the room. Yeah, two attorneys <laughs> well, no, were no, competent no. out of the gate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was only out of law school three months at that point. Um, and oh, yeah. Kirk, he was like, go read the rule, man. Before I do anything, I would go read the rule. You're like, forget and you. I'm going in there without reading the rule. My yeah. name's Gabe White. <laughs> no, so, so I, I, I... I mean, it was good advice. I, I, at the time, I, I was like, You'd be surprised, oh, though. yeah. You'd be surprised, though. In RCLE, the last year, I think I held up the rule book, and I said, how many of you have ever opened this rule book? And out of 80 people... Well, and if I, they have, they've well, read they Rule probably, 12 maybe, and Rule 56, but right. they have and, and they, Did and you they, get any objections as to 11. foundation and vagueness? Are you asking about that rule book? Are you asking about a rule book? Does opening mean going online? I mean, what if I read it online? I didn't open a book person. When I said when I said I wanted to use, I can't even answer this question. It's part of this podcast to get rid of stupid objections. I didn't mean for the audience. I meant for the people in the room. For old slow boy. It was a very targeted audience. I'm adding spice to this. That is your new It's like that Gary Larson cartoon where he's baking the earth and he's got a little salt shaker that says jerks on it and he's and like nah just add some spice you know, just, just to make things year, interesting we're all gonna chip in and get him get him slow boil slow for a vanity we're license we're gonna plate. rename the uh, trophy I think I, I should have a lot lower kind boil. of the slow buttery boil. well no the, the, the Scott <laughs> the Scott Powers <laughs> Memorial, Memorial Trophy will always be the Scott Powers Memorial Trophy we named it that so that we didn't have to change the name. What does that trophy look away. like? <laughs> uh, the last one we got was a <laughs> what, rear what end. Is that, what, is, what does that trophy look the, like? The, it changes every time, but this is this is off topic. It's for po <laughs> poker tournaments that we have amongst uh, poker tournaments in which no money changes hands. It's merely a fun game of friends. Just and podcast we, it's is not sponsors. <laughs> <laughs> illegal gambling in any way. There is, uh, but there is a Scott Powers Memorial Trophy for for whoever gets. Uh, that has no monetary value. And 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 um, it's different every time. It's been a toilet before. This time, 
Um, this last time, it's it's the rear end of a Ga- of Gabe, an equine. Gabe who, de- <laughs> Gabe, who designed the trophy this oh, time? This, this last time, actually, it was my... Uh, I, I just left it to my paralegal. Oh, I said to just find something embarrassing. I thought you were going to who modeled yeah. for it. Who modeled for it? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> it's a bust of me. Yeah. So, Scout, what did you learn today? What did I learn today? Oh, Slow Boy already knew it all. <laughs> uh, I pretty much knew it all. Yeah. Pretty much. I, I learned that Gabe has less stamina than I thought, <laughs> which was surprising. I learned that if That's I'm never true. in a depot with powers to cut it off at two hours because my client's... My client, client is tired. Client, my client He's is playing tired. me. That he can no longer I learned be relied upon. And, and wink at him as I walk up. <laughs> I, I have... <laughs> I have point seen, at him and say, I'm I don't want to get too much into, into war stories, but I have actually seen a deposition where a witness... Um, you know they ask that question, are you on any medications that would impair your uh, ability to testify? You want meth we, So we had a, a depot of this expert. I've been great. And gave, he, gave de- he gave a deposition that was going to result in summary judgment for the other uh-huh. side. And it wasn't my expert. And I wasn't filing the, the motion. It was a multi-party case, yeah. you know. And uh, it was the plaintiff's expert, and they filed a motion saying, no, he has the early state. He's been diagnosed just recently with, I think it was early stage. So basically the plaintiff's expert was terrible. It was going to lose their case, and they filed a motion saying he's nuts. Uh, having seen him, I bought it. I bought the motion. I mean, the others, the guys who were going to file the motion were like, there's no way, and they fought it. But I, watching him in depositions, I was like, because he said he was on two or like three counsel? different things. Why I was like, like counsel know that before the deposition rather than wasting the yeah, time? Yeah, exactly. Well, wasting the entire time. Well, apparently they didn't know. They didn't know. He hadn't told them. Yeah, but if it gotcha. became apparent during the deposition, wouldn't you take somebody aside and say, oh, well, I there, think our guy's it was, it was It was one of these situations where the case had started out with the name partners taking the depositions, and then I think the, the plaintiffs got the bill for that, and then suddenly all of the depositions were taken by the most junior associate at the firm. And you know, she, you know, she had just this freaking pot scours. He's been all over the place. She had just started learning how to do these deposition things. (laughs) Patrick Pert. There's no, there's no little little bit of irony that Slowboil's name is Pot Scours. Scours. (laughs) All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for hanging in there with us. We really appreciate uh, your loyalty and we use that bet and your stamina. And that is the Traveler podcast um, for today. Uh, we'd invite you to please join us if you can at the uh, deposition on the 4th. At the, the C, excuse me, the CLE, not the deposition. You're not allowed at the deposition unless you get a subpoena. We'll let you know. Um, We'll invite you to join us at the at the uh, CLE at the Utah Law and Justice Center, the Litigation 101 series on depositions and discovery on October 4th from 4 to 6 p.m. And otherwise, we will see you next week with a different topic. And um, so long. Thanks. Objection Foundation. <laughs>